Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Today, Joanne Watson talks about the global exhibition fever of the 19th century. Part A. First of all, I'll apologise for my voice because on Friday I had no voice. So you've got half a voice at the moment, so um, hopefully it'll last out. When I was looking at this, I thought about doing the Great Exhibition, and then I realised actually the 19th century was full of exhibitions. So hence why we're going to take a look at what happened during the entire century, on and off anyway. Now, the 19th century was boosted in the main by the advances made by industrialisation in Europe, and so exhibition fever took hold. The Great Exhibition was the British highlight, but it wasn't alone. It wasn't the first, and it wasn't the last. Now, if you think about it, in medieval times, large fairs have been part of European life for hundreds of years. People travelled from place to place, showing off their wares and entertaining the locals. But it would be reasonable to suggest it was the French that got the ball rolling in September 1789. Now, given these were very troubled times in France, it's perhaps surprising. But the remit has a familiar ring to it. To offer a range of products of the various branches of industry to encourage others to develop. The first exhibition was held in the Champ des Mars in Paris. The architect, Jean-Francois Chalgrin, who later designed the Arc de Triomphe, undertook the hasty construction of a large circle of porticos surrounding a temple of industry. Now, the temple would hold the objects of industries that the jury had selected. The event opened very grandly with a parade, trumpeters, cavalry, musicians, soldiers, heralds, manufacturers, plus the jury and, of course, the politicians. There were 110 exclusively French exhibitors, and given the short notice, not surprisingly, they all came from the Paris area. Exhibits included an instrument for cataract operations, paintings made from the plumes of exotic birds, a machine for extracting logs from rivers, and a device that demonstrated the new metric system, meters, grams, and liters. Interestingly, the jury was told to favor products that were comparable to those of British industry. Now, it was a success. The trend took hold, with regular expositions being held initially in the halls of the Louvre. Now, the pattern was repeatedly interrupted by wars, economic disturbances, and even a cholera epidemic. But they were a regular occurrence nonetheless, and increasing visitor numbers proved them to be very popular. Some of the early fairs saw inventions such as the Jacquard loom, which was to boost production, and others included mass-manufactured wallpapers. This was uh, shown alongside seats, uh, sheets of rubber, which were regarded as useful, even if no one quite knew what for, because this was prior to vulcanization. There were some very bizarre exhibits, such as a tapestry made of cat skins. Poor cats. Gold, silver, and bronze medals were awarded, and some inventors were rewarded with the Légion d'Honneur, so it became both prestigious and an important showcase. By 1834, they'd outgrown the Louvre, and special facilities were built, and the remit had changed. It was no longer only sufficient to demonstrate some incredible piece of machinery. The focus had to be on goods to benefit the masses, high quality and low price. In 1839, King Louis-Philippe took such an interest, he made regular visits to inspect all the exhibits. 
Louis Daguerre, one of the earliest photographers, showed his camera. He was one of more than 3,000 exhibitors, and it was the start of his fame. He became the camera, the photograph man for several decades. During this particular one, in 1839, forms of entertainment were also introduced. Now, five years later, it was Napoleon III-to-be, the Prince President, who saw more than 5,000 exhibitors. But it was the last to be confined to French manufacturers. Agriculture was also introduced, so the mix was everything from the latest locomotives, pianos, corsets, to some you know, grunting pigs and clucking chickens. Algeria, now part of France, had its own section, but this was mainly to show off the raw materials it provided for mainland France. It was free to enter, except on Thursday, when it cost you a franc, which went to charity. Now, such was the success of the French model, it led to similar but smaller events in other European cities, Bern, Madrid, St. Petersburg, Turin, and even Birmingham. Now, there'd been concern in Britain that we were lagging behind, there'd been a select committee report back in 1835 saying the arts in Britain had received little encouragement and the result was a decline in demand abroad for British goods and an increase in foreign imports at home. The catalyst for our great exhibition was the 1849 French version. Representatives of the Society of Arts and independent visitors came home with the same impression that we could do better something much grander with contributions from every nation. Now, by this stage, the president of the Society of Arts was Prince Albert, and the Society's aim was the encouragement of the arts, manufacturers, and commerce. The Society had held their own exhibition, and in 1847, it attracted more than 20,000 people, and more than 100,000 in 1849. Prince Albert's co-conspirator in the main was a civil servant in the public record office called Henry Cole. Famous for making the first commercially produced Christmas cards, he was winner of numerous design prizes, most notably for a tea service which he submitted under a pseudonym, published by blah blah blah, Home and Treasury Office. So it was quite handy being him in the, in the civil service. But in June 1849, Prince Albert Cole and a few others had a meeting at Buckingham Palace to further the idea. We're now just under two years to the opening. Several matters came under consideration. How would it be funded? Where would it be held? And the precise nature of the exhibition. They knew they needed to convince the public, press, and British manufacturers that it was a good idea, and they wouldn't be disadvantaged if it was open to all nations. They also decided an improvement in public taste was deemed necessary in order to stimulate the market for high-end goods. Now, several prestigious enterprises had been built in part through national lotteries, the British Museum and Westminster Bridge, to name but two. But both these and others had been mired in controversy through some very dodgy dealings, and lotteries had been banned in 1826. So the funding model they decided on was subscription, rather than taxation. As to the venue, the government offered Somerset House, but Prince Albert wanted Hyde Park, as it was easily accessible by all and handily owned by the Crown. With still much to be formulated, he gave a speech at the Mansion House in October 1849, and the idea was publicly announced, with grand plans to encompass the world in its offerings. A royal commission was set up by Albert, but he was determined it wouldn't be full of people with their own self-interest at heart. Members had had to prove their genuine, 
well-documented interest in the advancement of science and the arts. Now, getting subscriptions was tricky. They approached manufacturers, but they were still concerned about foreign involvement. And as shown in this punch cartoon of June 1850, Prince Albert was rather up against it. But how do you sort out the exhibits? Well, they decided to set up a string of local committees, and more than 300 were set up to administer items from their own region. The supporters and objectors can be divided into two groups. Four were the proponents of free trade, the newly emergent Liberal Party, the Broad Church, and significantly amongst the press, the Daily News and the Illustrated London News. Those against the protectionist wing in the Tory party, high church Anglicans, and the conservative press, including the Times and John Bull. You must remember, this is the period where there were lots of anxieties about the working class and foreigners. Not much has changed there. <laughs> this was exacerbated by the revolution in France in 48, chartist riots at home, and a real concern that worse was to come. There was a genuine fear among skilled artisans that foreigners might steal their designs, so enhanced pattern laws were brought in. Some manufacturers said inviting cheap labour would force down prices, importing cheap and nasty goods, and depriving good British workers of their livelihood. One paper called it nothing more than a giant shopping arcade erected for the benefit of, ma of foreign manufacturers, and foreigners would call us gullible fools. So many of those expecting to fund it were actually already against it. There was also concern that foreigners would, would bring and spread disease. One anonymous writer said it could see a return to the Middle Ages and Black Death. So by July 1850, opposition was at its height. One other complaint was the sighting in Hyde Park, as they saw, uh, they saw it as a desecration, as it would necessitate the uprooting of some elm trees. So calls are made in Parliament to set up a committee, which would, of course, delay the project. Their claim was that no one could produce any evidence it would be a success, and honest John Bull would end up being taxed to pay for it. Think of the 2012 Olympics and the similar arguments. And of course, many of the vagrant community, roughly 70 to 80,000 in London, would go to Hyde Park, see the great and good, which would cause unrest stirred up by agitators, and could the police cope? So at the height of the anti-campaign, into the equation, albeit by accident, came the man most of us associate with the magnificent edifice that is the dominant image of the Great Exhibition. In the spring of 1850, the building committee sought out designs. 233 were submitted, but many came after the April the 8th deadline, and none were deemed fit for purpose. The remit, cheap, temporary, reusable if possible, wasn't attainable. They even tried cobbling something together, drawn from the various elements, and asked Brunel to come up with something. His idea was to be built of bricks with a 200-foot dome. Well, local residents were up in arms immediately. Think of the, the effects on them. Their neighborhood would become a construction site, and all the traffic. At this stage, it was envisaged the import of more than 12 million bricks, at least 40,000 tons of material, which worked out at 400 carts a day, one every 90 seconds coming into the park with all the noise and, and make it just a horrible building site. Criticism was widespread, even leading to a motion against it in Parliament. It was only then that Paxton came up with his design, famously little more than a scrawl on a piece of pink blotting paper doodled during a board meeting. Paxton was the seventh child of a farming family and had been the gardener at the horticultural gardens in Chiswick 
near to the London home of the Duke of Devonshire. His work was admired, and in 1823, at the age of just 20, he was offered the position of head gardener at the Duke's estate at Chatsworth. It's said he got the Chesterfield coach, arrived at Chatsford at 4.30 a.m., did the grand tour of the grounds, issued orders, had breakfast, met the housekeeper and her niece, who was to become his wife, all before 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, he appears to have been given a free reign and became manager of the estate. He often accompanied the Duke on trips to Europe, which were obviously invaluable to his development. And in 1832, he designed a series of glass houses. It was here he began cultivating what became known as the Cavendish banana. And these bananas and their cultivars are to this day the most consumed banana variety in the Western world. Amongst his construction was a 240-foot emperor peng, uh, fountain, which is still there today. But the most famous of his greenhouses was the giant glass lily house. If you've ever been to Kew Gardens, you'll, they've got a big lily house there. And it's a sort of similar, uh, similar idea. And basically, this is what Paxton's great exhibition design was, in fact, a much larger version of. Now, Paxton had moved up the social and wealth scale very quickly. He designed public parks and other glass houses and made a lot of money investing in railways. And it was on a trip to London for a railway meeting that he was encouraged to submit a design. The full plans were submitted just nine days later. Whilst it was being discussed, Paxton approached a building firm and then had his design published to great acclaim in the illustrated London News. He certainly knew how to manipulate people. Now, bolstered by the fact no contractor fancied building the Brunel version, Paxton's idea took wing. It was to cost £79,000, funded in part by a substantial loan from a member of the Finance Committee. One aspect that swung it for Paxton wasn't just the aesthetic appeal, but the prefabricated nature of the design. So much could be constructed off-site, therefore mollifying some of the locals. And Paxton had even added the dome to save the elm trees. It was to be the largest enclosed space in the world, 990,000 square feet, 1,848 feet in length, and 408 <coughs> feet wide, featuring 900,000 square feet of glass, all made in Birmingham. Can you imagine transporting that much glass on the roads that were then you know, around, even now, to be honest? It included 1,000 iron uh, columns and girders and covered 21 acres. They even apparently incorporated a form of air conditioning. And once it was finished, there would be more than two miles of promenades. Now, remarkably, all this was completed in just five months, with teams of navvies and glaziers working at breakneck speed. The name the Crystal Palace was coined by the editor of Punch, who had christened it a Palace of Very Crystal. Once construction began, it became a focal point for the curious. No hard hats or vis high-vis jackets in those days. They must have actually had some fantastic lifting gear, you know, to, to put that into place. Now, originally, the opening was intended just for the great and good, but complaints reigned in, and this led to the 30,000 season ticket holders being allowed entry on the opening day. These tickets cost three guineas for men and two guineas for women, so it was pretty pricey and would, of course, keep the riffraff out. The ceremony began with the national anthem, followed by formal speeches, starting with Prince Albert, but some people were against it. She had, in fact, survived five assassination attempts by this stage. Anyway, she ignored King Ernst Augustus. He maybe didn't get an invite, I don't know. And she, of course, was there at the opening. The ceremony began, sorry, with the national anthem, was followed by the formal speeches. And this is 
Albert's opening speech. Once the formalities were over, they went on the grand tour. It looks pretty crowded considering how many visitors they had to get in. As will be referred to later, some very flash French porcelain. Now this was the great exhibition of all the nations and representatives were on hand, but there seems to have been a few oddities. The Chinese Mandarin who paid his respects was the captain of a Chinese junk moored in the Thames who apparently gained admission without an invite. But on the opening day, it was still a work in progress. As some of the exhibits from France and America hadn't arrived, and others were still being unpacked. Queen Victoria wrote in her journal, This day is one of the greatest and most glorious days of our lives, with which to my pride and joy, the name of my dearly beloved Albert is forever associated. It is a day which makes my heart swell with thankfulness. She was greeted by huge crowds. The tremendous cheering, the joy expressed in every face, the vastness of every building with all its decorations and exhibits, the sound of the organ with 200 instruments and 600 voices, which seem nothing, and my beloved husband, the creator of this, a great peace festival, inviting the industry and art of all nations of the earth. All this was indeed moving and a day to live forever. Now, the Queen had loaned several items from the Royal Connection, including the most famous, the Koh Inor diamond. But many visitors were rather underwhelmed. Some described it as a bit of glass or an ungainly lump of stone. And it must have been quite difficult to see if it's that small and people crowding around it. Now, Queen Victoria's support was important as a rebuff to some right-wing elements of the press, but it seems ludicrous looking back that she wouldn't endorse her husband's venture. John Bull said, great as is our hostility to the famous glass house, our loyalty the, to the Queen is greater. The Times gave its verdict. The first impressions of the palace suggest a dream or vision, a surfeit of sensation. Fortune has at last favoured the courageous and pers persevering little band who originated and resolved to carry out the undertaking. So, unlike the opening of the Millennium Dome 150 years later, the press were generally in favour. None of the displayed goods were available to purchase, but it did perhaps serve to heighten the aspirations of many well-off Victorians. One observer saw it as the start of a consumer culture and undoubtedly was an inspiration to entrepreneurs and the upwardly mobile as well. Some of the exhibits, an automatic envelope folding machine, 2,700 per hour, a brick-making machine from the US, and primitive knitting and washing machines were much admired. Not everyone was happy. William Morris called it wonderfully ugly and refused to enter. Many saw industrialization at the expense of aesthetics. Now, the exhibits were set out in two different ways. In the eastern nave, foreign contributions were organized by country rather, rather than by category. British exhibits in the western end were better arranged, done logically, though they seem to have overdone the taxidermy, which was very much in vogue in the period. A stuffed elephant was needed for the howdah that had been sent, there's two of them, from India. Now, apparently, it was too late to get a skin shipped over and stuffed, so the best they could come up with was from a museum in Saffron Walden. And it was the wrong sort, an African rather than Indian elephant. But no one seemed to care. Anyway, some of the, uh, there were lots of stuffed creatures, and some of them were very dodgy. When Punch heard about this, this is before it opened, they came up with some ideas of their own. Memorabilia was also very popular. There were lots of postcards. 
Now, some overseas exhibitors expressed concern about how their goods would be displayed. The Swiss cheese producers wanted to know where their produce would be stored and if they could withdraw the cheeses when they showed signs of going off. Despite its positive reviews, there were still objectors. The religious right, for example, one letter writer called on the press and the pulpit to speak out against it. The naked men and women, the crucifixes and the superstitious rubbish, they'll make a fearful breach in chastity, the moderation and the spirituality of this Christian people. Of course, the Great Exhibition gave Britain the opportunity to put the nation on display. An opportunity, it was said, to show to the world the British sense of civility, moral rectitude, endeavor, duty, and responsibility. Free truth, free thought, free word, and, of course, cultural superiority. But it did show Britain up in terms of the industrial arts where others excelled. Whereas Britain produced cheap and mass-produced durable and affordable goods, they were perceived to lack the luxury and quality of certain French designs. The Times said, our furniture may last for centuries, but it's generally insipid and heavy, and lacking the imagination of sometimes inferior French artisans who wowed visitors with porcelain and silk goods. We have amongst us extraordinary instances of science, genius, and taste, but as a general rule, there is more of these qualities in a French operative than in an English. Whatever can be done by machinery, whatever re requires steady industry, capital, or the, or the co cooperation of numbers is better here than in France. But equally, and surprising to most of the visitors, was the realization that India, thousands of miles away, was also producing sophisticated, aesthetically pleasing commodities. The official catalogue described their goods as a combination of the gifts of nature with the creations of art. It also opened the eyes of many that a considerable amount of the raw materials that Britain needed were coming from the colonies. Although many of the exhibits had an appeal to male visitors, many other domestic and aesthetic attractions were popular with women visitors, and there were several female exhibitors of various sorts. Lace embroidery, you, well, you might expect, but it included specimens of darning from Hamburg. In fact, a largely aristocratic committee of women had set up their own fundraising organization to promote women's enterprise. The Illustrated London News ran a series of columns called A Lady's Glance at the Great Exhibition. Women were, of course, valuable consumers, so mustn't be forgotten. But the presence of women, or so many of them coming to Hyde Park, did bring concerns about the behavior of men. And some thought the presence of women would give assassins and conspirators ample opportunity to hide before performing their nefarious deeds. Lock up your wives and daughters, proclaimed one opponent. Well, none of these concerns were realized, but the sight of so many of these exhibits did lead to outbreaks of nervous hysteria, and both men and women were fainting by in, uh, in quite considerable numbers. It did promote British nationalism. Poems and songs proliferated. It also gave the British press ample opportunity to castigate the US over the subject of slavery, which had been abolished in Britain, but which still existed there. One writer asked why America hadn't sent a black or two to stand in manacles as an example of American manufacturer. There is, of course, a fine line between national pride and xenophobia. Some saw it as a tournament of nations rather than an exhibition. And what of those foreign vagabonds that many had seen as likely to flood London, causing their inevitable mischief? 
England wasn't popular in many quarters on the continent. There had been calls for an armed police to deal with foreign desperadoes, armed with pistols and stilettos. They even appealed to the 82-year-old Duke of Wellington to take charge and allow, if necessary, martial law. Now, none of this came to pass. London, as one observer remarked, had swallowed them up and mayhem had not followed. It's estimated that more than 58,000 visitors visited the exhibition. Now, the international reaction was mixed, in part due to some elements which hadn't arrived for the opening. Albert's idea of promoting peace was lost on many, who regarded it as a commercial platform. Although some nations found themselves very adjacent to either recent or past enemies, there seems to have been great harmony with exhibitors helping their neighbours in the rush to be ready. No smoking was allowed, no alcoholic drinks were served, the soft drinks contract went to a certain mess of sweeps. So it was also known as the temperance house. But you can imagine it was very noisy with all the machinery and the chatter, the sort of Tower of Babel. And along with the refreshment rooms came, for the first time, public conveniences, organised by Mr George Jennings, where for a penny you could have a private cubicle, shoe shine, and brush down. Hence the saying, you spend a penny. But Tim Davis is going to talk about George Jennings, who I think is a distant relative of his, next year. So you can follow up on that. Queen Victoria came repeatedly, sometimes accompanied by a prince or a king of somewhere or other, other times without a sort of big official entourage. Now, the entry pricing was designed to segregate the classes. In addition to the season tickets, the entrance fee for the first few days was a pound, and then it dropped to a shilling from Monday to Thursday, a bit more at weekends when the wealthiest would visit. It was, of course, closed on Sundays. The rail companies were encouraged to have special exhibition fairs. Travelling clubs, rather like Christmas clubs, encouraged artisans to save regularly in order to afford the trip. But inevitably, some Londoners took advantage of their country cousins and charged extortionate prices for accommodation. The Great Exhibition Committee did try and prevent such profiteering, but inevitably, it's a thankless task. But what was it like for an ordinary visitor? I'm now going to show you a film courtesy of the V&A, which is called A Day at the Exhibition. Please take the link on the website and view the clip from the Victorian Albert Museum before listening to Part B. This podcast is published by the Mr T Podcast Studio.